You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right. I was supposed to start a uh, four-week series today on what we believe and what we are to be devoted to. But looking at what's going on in the news uh, around the world and especially in the United States, I felt like it was important for me to take, uh, to not start that, but to go into uh, the area addressing the, the division that I see in the world and even in the church. And it is in all the churches. I've talked with several of the pastors on uh, this island. It is everywhere. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is going to be our starting point today. We're going to be in several passages in the New Testament today, but Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm just going to tell you, like, there are times in a church where uh, we need to be admonished. Uh, This is going to be one of those sermons. Uh, I think of Paul when he uh, uh, was addressing the Galatians. At one point he said, oh foolish Galatians, right? I'm not going to call you guys fools uh, today, but um, this is going to be an admonishment sermon, uh, just for us to look at our hearts and to see where we are with God and with one another. And so I want to read this passage slowly because I want you to listen very carefully. A lot of these passages we're going to read today really need zero comment because they're so plain, but I'm praying that you will get uh, the message that I will get the message uh, that is coming from the Word of God today. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All, all, all. One, one, one. This is the very word of God. Let's look to him because we desperately need him. God, I am a man who is very limited in his abilities. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me today And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would convict and that if we are, if anyone is in here who has a problem with someone else, there's anger, hatred, division, I pray that it would be taken care of immediately. Convict us, cut us so that you can heal us, remove the cancer sin that's within us. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I cannot honestly remember a time uh, in this world where, the, where, in my lifetime, where this world has been so divided. I know that we've always had uh, fights, uh, political fights and wars and, and all sorts of things, but it just seems like it's a new level uh, today. And the saddest thing for me is that this is in the church. Divisions are in the church. The church that Jesus purchased with his very own blood. He bought us, and there are divisions in his church. This world is at war with each other. Republicans are at war with Democrats and vice versa. Conservatives are at war with liberals and vice versa. It seems like the poor um, and the middle class are at war with the wealthy and the rich. There is war all around us. But as I said before, the most disheartening, the, most thing, the thing that is most disheartening about this war is that this war is also within the church. The church is divided on so many issues. If I were to list all the issues that the churches in America and around the world are divided on, it would literally take me an hour to two hours just to list the things that we divide on, that we're willing to fight over. But I want to talk about just two of them today. I want to pick out two of them because they're in the news all the time. Uh, If you turn on any kind of news station, you're going to hear about these things. And I want to use these two uh, illustrations, these two uh, situations that are going on to demonstrate how divisive 
the church can be. Uh, the, the two illustrations I want to use are the response to George Floyd's death, which uh, happened at the end of May, and the response to the coronavirus. Christians are very, have very strong opinions on both of these issues. There are many people, whether in person or on social media, who are not afraid to state their view whatsoever. They don't care who they offend. They don't care how they say it. It's just like, you know, deal with it. Uh, type of thing. Others, on the other hand, are quite afraid to speak up, to share their opinions because of the uh, possible social backlash that they may have or even the financial backlash that they may have. There are people who have lost their jobs for stating their opinions on these issues. There are people who have been fired because they challenged the Black Lives Matter movement. They said they dared to say all lives matter which is something that you cannot say today, and they lost their position. So they're just like, I'm not going to say anything for fear. Or if they say something, they might be chastised or rebuked or yelled at even within the church. Sadly, and I'm just talking in terms of the church right now, brothers and sisters in Christ become enemies. Their hatred and resentment build up among them, and then they start to separate they start to separate either emotionally, you know what, I'm just going to avoid this person, or they separate physically and say, I'm not even going to ever go around that person again. In fact, I might even not even come to the church anymore if this is what's going to go on. Those who do stay and fight in the church uh, often resort to rhetoric that further divides, right? They just hunker down, they dig in. The church is at war. Let me just give you a few real-life examples. These are not fictitious illustrations. These are real-life examples of what's been going on. And here's what I want you to do as I give you these, um, uh, these stories, these uh, real stories that are going on. I want you to test your heart. Okay? And I don't want you to say anything out loud, but I want to see where you, your heart is on these issues. Okay? So uh, let me begin with a response that one church had to the coronavirus. Uh, John MacArthur and the elders of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, came out with a statement about three weeks ago that said that they would be defying the Governor Gavin Newsom's orders for churches to restrict uh, their, uh, either their services completely or the number of people who are in the services. So this is the, the statement, this is part of the statement that came out from Grace Community Churches, uh, for church. It says this, quote, in response to the recent state order requiring churches in California to limit or suspend all meetings indefinitely, we, the pastors and elders of Grace Community Church, respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction. Faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. Now, he put that statement out, and then the very next Sunday, um, there is a picture posted of the people at Grace Community Church. There's about 3,000 people in the church, most of whom were not wearing masks at all. Okay? So what I want you to do is I want to stop right there, and I want, to, I want you to ask, how do I feel about this? Right? I want you to check your heart. Because I can guarantee, with the conversations that I've had with people in this church— who are here physically and who are at home, that there are certain people who are saying, amen, amen, preach it, Dr. MacArthur, you've never been more right. This whole thing is overblown. How dare they try to infringe upon our rights? You go, I'm going to take off my mask right now. There are people who I know are taking that response. How dare the government come in? I also know and can guarantee that there are people in this church who are shaking their heads in disbelief and saying, how absolutely insensitive. How dangerous that is. Does he not know that he's endangering the lives of the people in his congregation? How could he be so cavalier about this disease, this virus that is real in this world? There are people on both ends, and so check your heart. Do you stand with MacArthur, or do you are you angry at his stance? Most people will have a very strong opinion one way or another. 
Also this last week, I watched a pastor, um, and I'm not afraid to use his name because he, he's got a large church and a, a following on social media, uh, but his name was Greg, I think it's Lockie, and he, he, he's got this vlog, and he just ranted uh, for about 30 minutes about how he went into Dunkin' Donuts, and he's been in there thousands of times before, the same Dunkin' Donuts, and he was told that he couldn't come back unless he had a mask. And he was ready to fight. Like, I mean, he was ready to fight. He's a pastor of a church and just ranted for about 30 minutes about how stupid this was, how ignorant it was, how wrong it was. And then you have on the other end, you had uh, the pastor, uh, Andy Stanley, a large church, who said a couple weeks ago that they would be suspending in live worship services until at least 2021. Now, once again, there are people in here who are thinking, go, Greg, absolutely. And there's other people saying, thank you. The voice of reason coming from Andy Stanley. We are divided on these issues. You know, I thought about this. I won't do it, so don't stay in your seats. But I thought about, like, let's have the people who take MacArthur's stance on this side and the people who take Stanley's side on this side, you know, and you would see, and you'd be like, you'd see some glares. I'm not going to do that. Stay in your seats, okay? But it would show you that, whoa, wow, we are really divided. And if you took these people and put them in the same room, it would not look pretty, okay? There's a lot that's going on. So the other example I told you I wanted to use was George Floyd, um, the death of George Floyd and the ensuing protests and riots. I have a good friend who's an elder in a fairly large conservative Bible-believing church, and he uh, posted, uh, made a post on Facebook quoting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his stance on nonviolence. Martin Luther King Jr. saying violence is never the answer. You know, you know Martin Luther King Jr.'s stance on that. Um, and he got chastised by a black woman in his church for how insensitive it was for him to post this comment about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or from him. It was his own words. I've also seen uh, Christians uh, posting Black Lives Matter logos on their Facebook pages. I have seen and heard of uh, Christians marching in Black Lives Matter uh, protests and um, kneeling in solidarity with the black community with fists in the air. I've seen it. I've also, uh, this a couple weeks ago, I saw a Christian on Facebook post this meme and it said this, black privilege, colon, the ability to break every law in the United States and get away with it. Not just some laws, every law in the United States and get away with it. These are just some examples, just a couple examples of how Christians, these are Christians that I'm talking about right now, differ on these issues. And once again, if you put them in the same room, it would not end very nicely. On social media platforms such as Facebook, I have seen Christians use vile language towards their opponents, whether they be non-Christians or even Christians. I have seen it with my own eyes. And it seems when I read that, it just seems like we've thrown out the commands of our Lord, just thrown them out, where Jesus said, I want you to be one. I want you to forgive. I want you to be restored, reconciled to one another. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I can't do that. Certainly God does not expect me to be unified with a brother or sister that insists that I must wear a mask. Certainly he doesn't want me to be unified with someone who is letting the government come in and tell us what we can do. Certainly God is not calling me to be unified with a brother or a sister who is so insensitive that they would not wear a mask. God is not calling me to do that. And what I would say to that is, yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's calling us to be unified. These, two, these are just a couple of examples to show how we're fighting in the church, what's going on. And you can give many more. So what I want to do with the time remaining is I want to show and to demonstrate from the word of God just how serious God is about this issue of unity. Um, we're going to go through a couple of passages because this is an issue, a topic in the Bible that's not just mentioned once in passing or even twice, but it is literally a theme throughout the entire New Testament. And I want you to see how much God takes this serious, the issues of unity, 
forgiveness, and reconciliation. We're going to begin with our passage that uh, we read a few minutes ago from Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to listen to Paul's exhortation once again. Here's what he says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let me just stop there for a second. You can hear the urgency in his voice. I'm urging you to live in such a way that reflects the character of Christ. You have to do this. I'm urging you to do this. So what does that look like? What does a life that reflects the character of Christ look like? He says this, with all humility, with all humility. So we need to ask the question, why in the world do I need humility? Why do we need humility? Well, the answer is clear, because by nature we are filled with pride. By nature, we want what we want. We are convinced that we are right, that our way of looking at the world is actually the right way to look at the world, that the sources that we're getting our facts from are the sources that everyone should be getting their facts from because they are the true sources of facts. This is how we see the world, and so this is, how, this is why we are in desperate need of humility. Paul goes on and says this, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness is a very important word for us. The philosopher Aristotle described this word as the middle standing between two extremes. Getting angry without reason and not getting angry at all. In other words, it is gentleness is getting angry at the right time, in the right measure, for the right reasons. Let me ask you this question. Can we as Christians, do we have the right to become angry? The answer is yes. Yes, absolutely. Jesus got angry, right? Paul got angry. Peter got angry. The Bible says be angry and sin not. And that's the key, right? We are allowed to get angry, but how we handle that anger makes all the difference of the world. How we handle that anger is the difference between maintaining unity or completely destroying unity. Will we deal with those we disagree with in a gentle way or will we obliterate them in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions? The word of God calls his people to gentleness. Moving on, Paul says this, with patience, for bear, are bearing with one another in love. Once again, why in the world do I need patience? Why in the world do I need to bear with one another, with someone else? Well, the reason that we need to do this is because people are idiots, right? Or so we think, right? That's what we think. We think that of people. We may not say that out loud, but many times we are thinking that. Since others don't see things the way that we see them, we just assume that they are wrong. They have to be wrong. I have a poster um, in my office that says this, if I agreed with you, we'd both be wrong. Right? You get that? I mean, it's just like, I want to agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong, right? And, and that's how we view the world, right? I mean, that's how it is. I'm right. Obviously, I'm right. And that's how we all think. And then you get two people who are right in a room with opposing views, and it's never pretty. And I'll just say, in some cases, right, um, people are wrong. I mean, it's clear that they're wrong. But still, we're called to bear with their ignorance in that case. Yes, they're wrong, but how do we handle that? We need to show self-restraint in our words and in our actions. Finally, in Ephesians 4, Paul gets to the reason for all of this. He says it is to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he says we are to be eager to do this, which means that we are to make every effort possible to maintain unity. Much more could be said about the importance of unity from Ephesians 4 passage, but I want to move on and see more pleas in the New Testament for unity. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you're in Ephesians, you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians was written by Paul while he was in prison, okay? 
the majority of the letter is just thanksgiving to God. It's just this praise to God for his provision, for the expansion of the gospel, and even for the Philippians himself. Paul is just so thankful for the Philippians. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, here's what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was so thankful because they had partnered with him in the gospel. They were with him. They were in the trenches with him. Even though he was in another place, there in Philippi, they were partners with him in the gospel. They had a mission. That mission was to bring the message of the love of Jesus, forgiveness of sins to the world's. And they were intent on that mission, but there were several things that could hinder that mission, the proclamation of that mission. And one of those things was divisions and fights in the church. And Paul deals with this in this letter. Philippians 1, verse 12. Look at this with me. It says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that's his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, that's divisions, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Division. Division. They were pushing forth their own agenda and they were creating disunity. But it wasn't just those outside the church, all right? Uh, the church of Philippi was also in the midst of the people in Philippi. And so he addresses that in the rest of the letter. Philippians 1, 27. Here's what he says. Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 4, 1, where he says, walk in a manner worthy. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's unity. With one mind. That's unity. Striving side by side. That's unity for the faith of the gospel. The mission is too important to be fighting against each other. But isn't that what Satan does? Doesn't Satan want to distract us from the mission? Doesn't Satan want us to make us, to make us think that these other issues, how we respond to the coronavirus, how we respond to Black Lives Matter, that these are the important issues. These are the issues that should take precedent. Doesn't Satan want to convince us that, yes, it is worth dividing over. It is worth fighting over. It is worth hating each other over. He loves to divide. And in the process, this whole process, what Satan does is he weakens the church. And very often we are all too accommodating for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices or else we would be outwitted by him. And here's what I want to say. If we see divisions in this church, if you start to feel anger towards someone else, bitterness towards a brother or sister in Christ, I can guarantee you that Satan's fingerprints are all over it. And you've probably been outwitted by him. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Paul's not done. <laughs> he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. So... If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He can't be clear, right? One, 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 over and over again. And he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there we go again, humility, count others more significant than yourself. Really? Yes. Okay. Let each of you not look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he just really brings it down and he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
way better than you, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And then he goes on. Jesus, look to Jesus. If you want to talk about humility, not preferring himself, but thinking about us, look to Jesus. Are you hearing this? Am I hearing this? Is it sinking in? I hope so, because we need this desperately. Paul closes out the letter by rebuking two women in the church. And Paul names names. All right, I'm not going to do that today, right? But could you imagine as this letter is being read in a church service? Oh yeah, these two women. People looking at him, right? He says this. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true comrade, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You hear what he's saying? These two women who labored with me in the work of the gospel, they're fighting now. The mission is too important. Unity, once again, for the purpose of mission. We can't fight. The stakes are too high. Let's move from Philippians into 1 Corinthians. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, and while you're turning there, I really wanted to insert something about James. I wanted to look at the book of James because the book of James talks a lot about unity uh, and divisions. But I'm just going to give you some highlights as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First of all, James condemns favoritism, which led to disunity. Then James talks about the tongue, this really small member of your body, which is able to cause great destruction. He compares it to a little spark, which sets a whole forest on fire. And he's saying one little tongue in a church can divide that church, can wreak havoc. And then he admonishes them for their fights and their quarrels. And then he finally just comes right out and says, don't speak evil against one another. It can't be more clear than that. Stop talking bad about the people in your church, in your fellowship. Obviously, there's much more in the book of James, but I want to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians, uh, beginning in chapter 1. I mentioned this the last time that I uh, preached, but it bears repeating. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you would see that it was a super messed up church. There were a whole lot of problems in this church. In fact, if you read it, it's almost as if Paul has a, a clipboard with a checklist, like, okay, let's deal with this, all right, and deals with it. He's like, any questions? Let's move on to the next one. You guys are also messed up here, you know, and then now let's move on to the next one. Just one after another. He's so, he was so straightforward and so harsh with them that when he wrote the second letter that we have, he's like, oh, I know that I was rough. <laughs> I know that I was so rough with you. But he's also thankful because he says it did what I wanted it to do. It, it produced repentance in you. And you said, wow, we really are messed up. And they repented. They turned away from their sins. Let me just give you a couple um, examples of the things that he was dealing with in this church. Okay? This is a church. All right? Chapter 5, he deals with a man who was sleeping with his stepmother and bragging about it. Not just doing it in secret, but bragging about it. People, that's messed up, right? That might be top on my list. Let's deal with this first. That's messed up. In chapter 6, he deals with fellow brothers and sisters who were taking each other to court. That's super messed up, okay? Taking them to court. In chapter 6 and 7, he deals with sexual immorality and marriage problems. In chapter 10, he deals with idolatry. In chapter 11, he deals with a misuse of the Lord's Supper. In chapters 12 through 14, he deals with misuse of the spiritual gifts. And in chapter 15, he deals with their messed up theology regarding the resurrection of the body in the last day. These people had a whole mess of problems. But in the midst of all of these problems, what is the very first issue that Paul deals with? What did he prioritize above all the rest of them? Well, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Because right after the greeting, he comes out guns blazing. And here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree 
And if you don't know what I mean by that, that there be no divisions among you. And if you don't need, know what I mean by that, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then he goes on to tell how they were divided. I want you, I don't want any divisions among you. I want you to all agree. I want you to be united. This is the very, very first thing that Paul deals with. But he's not done. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says this, But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. You're not yet ready. Why? Well, for you are still in the flesh. What do you mean by that, Paul? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, that's divisions, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Once again, divisions, divisions in the body, in the church. And if you were to think about, if you were to go through 1 Corinthians and see all the things that he lists, you would see that a whole lot of their problems actually come out of their divisions that they were experiencing with one another. For example, you cannot be united with a person and then turn around and sue them in court. You imagine, you imagine that? We're here today and we're lifting up our hands in praise and you're standing next to a brother and you're praising God and then the very next day you're standing in the Galveston County courtroom and you're suing that brother you cannot be united, right? That is division in the worst manner. But that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. And the fights over spiritual gifts were rooted in disunity. The problems, if you look at chapter 11, surrounding the Lord's Supper and the misuse of that was dealt with disunity as well. All over the book is disunity. So much so that Paul stops. He pauses right in the middle of his uh, rebuke to them regarding the spiritual gifts and he lays forth the most beautiful definitive definition of love once again if you have your bibles turn to first corinthians chapter 13 this is the last passage we'll look at in first corinthians there paul says this if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal let me stop there if I am the most elegant preacher ever, if I have the greatest oratory ability, but don't do it in love, it's just a bunch of noise. It's nails on a chalkboard. Really? Yes. Yes. And then he goes on and he says this, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing really i've memorized the bible in english and the original hebrew and greek i know every doctrine of the bible i can debate them i've read thousands hundreds of thousands of books you're telling me that if i don't do it with love then i'm nothing really nothing yes that's what he's saying by the way i have not memorized any of the bible in hebrew or greek um if you have he goes on he says if i give away all that i have if i deliver my body to be burned but have not love i gain nothing really i emptied my bank account for the church every time there was a missionary in town i gave to them and you're telling me that if i didn't do it with love i gain nothing from that and the answer is yes you gain nothing from it so by the time he gets, you know, by the time he's saying this, I hope that the Corinthians, and I hope that we are saying, if love is this important, then please tell me what love is, because I may have missed something. And so he does, and he says this. Love is, and I'm just going to read this. I'd love to go into this, but I can't. He's, I'm just going to read it. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
It never ends. Wow, that is powerful. It is powerful. There's so many other verses that we could point to regarding unity in the New Testament. But I want to ask you a question right now, and I want to ask you this. Why is unity so important? Why is it talked about over and over again in the New Testament? Why is it so important? And the simple answer is this. It's a simple answer, but it's also very, very profound. And the reason that unity is important is because Jesus paid the ultimate price of his life so that he could draw us to himself and unite us to himself and to one another. That's why it's so important. We were separated from him. We were rebellious and enemies of his. We had all the wrong views and all the wrong responses regarding this life and God himself. And despite all of our misunderstandings about God, in spite of, uh, despite all of our outright rebellion against God, what did he do? He did not move away from us. Rather, he moved towards us. He did not say, nope, I'm not going to deal with you anymore. He moved towards us. He was and is very aware that we are but dust. He knows that we're prone to wander away. He knows that we're prone to stand in defiant pride for our own rights. I have a right to do this. But in the midst of all of that, the words from Romans 5, 8 come out loud and clear. But God shows his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still prideful and arrogant and selfish and insensitive, while we were all of these things, Christ died for us. Jesus gave up the glory and the riches of heaven. He became poor. He walked among us, living the perfect life that we could not, but yet we were required to do. And then he went to the cross and died for all of our sins. He died for our disunity. He died for that anger that you may have towards a brother or sister in Christ right now. He died for that. He died for the grudges that we hold against one another. He died for our fighting. There's an important thing that I don't want you to miss. And so the last passage I really want you to turn to is John chapter 17. Because I want to see Jesus' own words. So John chapter 17. In John 17, we see... These are the last hours of Jesus' life, just before he's going to be arrested and crucified. And what does he do? He gets alone. He gets alone and he prays to the Father. And it's an intense prayer. And he prays several things. He prays that he and the Father would be glorified through this all. He prays that the, the disciples that are with him right now would be protected and that those who would come after them would be protected as well. But beginning in verse 20, listen to what he praise for. Listen for the word one. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, wor- for the, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's mission again. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. One, one, perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. That's mission. And then this incredible statement that you loved them, that's us, even as you loved me. That's Jesus. The Father loves you as much as he loves his Son. Jesus died to unite us to himself and to each other. Think about for a moment what that first early church must have looked like as they were gathering together in worship. There were males and females there. Now, I know that doesn't seem weird here because that's what we're used to, but that would have been fairly a new thing. Males and females coming together. Jews and Gentiles. Let me just bring it into the 21st century. Blacks, whites, Asians, Hispanics, all bringing their own culture into the church. 
their own music, their own style of doing things, all coming into the church. Those who owned slaves and those who were slaves. Once again, bring it into the 21st century. Those who owned the business and those who worked for the person who owned the business. You would have managers and employees in the same place. Those who hated the Roman government and wanted to overthrow it, and those who worked for the Roman government. Even in Jesus' group, he had a zealot who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and a tax collector who worked for the Roman government. All of these people came together to worship the Lord in the same place. Talk about opposing viewpoints, right? Talk about different cultural backgrounds. The early church had it all. And Jesus knew that it would be so. And that's why he prays to the Father for unity within the church. And that's why his followers were constantly emphasizing, as we've already seen today, the importance for unity. Jesus died to make us one with him. How dare we fight against that? How dare we fight against that? You and I have not endured even one hundredth of the ridicule and insensitivity that Jesus did, and yet we think that we have a right to hold a grudge against someone else. I know that this is in a different context. It's in the context of marriage. In Matthew, when Jesus said this, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. Right? And since we're called the bride of Christ and our, our relationship with Jesus is compared to a marriage, this is what it is, right? How dare? What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. When we hold a grudge, when we walk away in anger, when we refuse to be reconciled to someone, we are fighting against none other than God himself. Okay? I know you said this, God, but no, I'm not going to do it. And if we're honest, we would all have to admit that we're guilty of sinning against God and fighting against God in this way. So, Final question, what do we do? What do we do about this? Um, if there's fighting in the church, if there's divisions in the church, what do we do? Here's the first thing I want to say. Um, if you're at odds with anyone in the church, uh, in this church specifically, a brother or sister uh, in Christ, take care of it now. Take care of it now. And if you're saying, are you telling me that I need to leave church right now and do it? Yes, I'm telling you to leave church right now and do it, right? Or do it today. Don't wait. It is that serious. We cannot be fighting against each other. We need to restore unity. And then in the future, here are some steps that I would just want to lay forth um, about how we can maintain the unity that has been given to us. The first step comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. I want to root these all in the scriptures, right? These are not my own thoughts. And, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says this, pray without ceasing, okay? The very first thing that we need to do is we need to pray. And what are we to pray for? Everything right? Everything. Specifically here, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom in how to deal with the situation. Pray for Christ-likeness in your day-to-day -day interactions with other people. Pray that you would truly exhibit humility and gentleness, that you would truly be patient and bear with other people, realizing just how patient God has been with you and me. So pray. Second step comes from James chapter 1. You don't have to turn here. You can just listen. James chapter 1 verse 19 says this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That, that phrase, I think, uh, slow to speak has a double meaning. Slow to speak when initiating a conversation, and slow to speak when responding during a conversation, right? Slow to speak. This has been something that I have struggled with. I'm sure most of us have struggled with in our lives. Um, there are times during the week um, that I will get an email that I don't really like. Um, and I'll tell you what, I open the computer and I'm just like, my heart rate is raised and I'm just typing, oh, you're so wrong, you know? And, and I am about to send this and it's just like, oh, I'm just going to create further divisions. And I have done that before. But what I've done, thankfully, by the grace of God in the last couple of years is I'm like, nope, if I don't need to respond right now, I don't. And I wait 24 hours and I read over it again and I think through it and I ask myself, are they right in this regard? Is there any truth to what they're saying? 
how are they saying it? Maybe they are saying it in a mean spirit, but how am I going to react? And I'm going to tell you what, those 24 hours make all the difference in the world, right? Sometimes you don't have 24 hours to respond, right? You're in a conversation face-to-face with someone. You're not going to say, give me 24 hours to think about it, right? But we need to be careful. We need to be slow to speak and slow to anger. Going along with being slow to speak, I, I'm reminded of Paul's admonition um, in, or, or his, his command in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where he says this, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so what I want to tell you is that during the whole time that you're determining what to say and how to respond, it is essential that you take all of the thoughts that are coming to your mind captive and put them under the submission of Christ. Ask yourself this, is this a worldly thought that's coming into my mind? Is it influenced by Satan or is it a divinely ordered thought? Is it coming from the Holy Spirit? Is it informed by the word of God? Only after you have placed these thoughts under the influence of Jesus should you ever even consider talking. Now I know that this is like, whoa, wait, I don't operate like this. Well, we need to start doing that, right? And this may take some time, but it's worth working at in order to preserve the unity. This brings us to our next step. When or if you decide to speak, make sure that you speak only words that build up. Make sure that you speak only words that build up. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is very important. Um, It's a very important test for your words. Ask yourself this. Will what I am saying, what I'm about to say, will this build up this person or these people who may hear me or read this comment that I'm making, or will it tear them down? Okay? Now, I want, you to, I want to be quick to remind you that um, corrective words don't always have to be positive words, if you know what I mean. Um, sometimes you have to come to someone and say, what you're doing right now is sin. It's wrong. If someone were to come to me and say, hey, you were gossiping on Friday, and according to God's word, that's not right. Now, chances are I'm not going to be like, well, thank you so much for caring for me to tell me. I'm going to be like, I'm going to get defensive, Right? And I'm going to feel tore down at first. But in the end, what are they really doing? They're building me up. They're calling me to be more like Christ. They're calling me to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So how you say something and why you say something makes all the difference in the world. Take, for example, um, if you're going to post, I know a lot of people post on, on Facebook. Before you post anything, ask why you're posting it. Okay? Why are you posting it? Am I posting this because I really feel that the people need to know this? This is a problem in our society and it really needs to be addressed. And I don't know how many people know about this, so I want to address it. Are you posting it in that spirit or are you posting it to really strike a nerve with someone? Oh, I want to get those liberals or ooh, I want to get these people, right? It makes all the difference in the world. Your attitude. That post that I talked about earlier from a Christian about black privilege, you know, the ability to do, break every law in the United States and get away with it. That post, in my opinion, had no redeeming value whatsoever. It was not meant to open up a conversation. It was meant to stick someone, to stab someone. First of all, because it's not true, right? The people who are writing are not breaking every law in the United States, right? And black people are not breaking every law in the United States, they're equally breaking laws with the, United, with the white people and the Asian people and every other group. So ask yourself, what are you posting and why are you posting it? What are you saying and why are you saying it? Is it honoring to God? Finally, be ready to forgive. Be ready to forgive. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 and 32 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this church, and in any church that you go to, are going to, at one time or another, offend you. It's just as simple as that. 
But I can guarantee you that no one person in this church or any other church will ever offend you as much or as many times as you have offended and will continue to offend your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are constantly offending him. And aren't we so glad that he is always there to forgive us? Aren't you so glad that where sin abounds, grace super abounds? The psalmist said of God, he says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And we're thinking, thank you so much, right? Peter came to Jesus and said, so how often should I forgive my brother if he keeps sinning the same sin against me? Seven times? And he thought he was being generous. And what does Jesus say? No, seven times 70. And Jesus wasn't saying 490 times. Jesus was saying again and again and the same sin. Yes, again and again and again. That's how often. And then you ever think about the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Do we really, really want that? <laughs> right? If we are following Christ and we are forgiving as he forgave, then yes. But very often, man, could you imagine if God said, I'd like to forgive you, but I'm not going to because you're still holding a grudge against this person. Oh, oh, so you are serious. Yes. I am serious. Beloved, these are the words of God. This is his message to us, his church. They cannot be clearer. Our battle is against spiritual unseen forces which seek to plunge us into ruin. And we must be united in this battle. We must lay aside our differences. We must be quick to forgive. And we must join hand in hand to accomplish the mission of bringing Galveston to Jesus and bringing Texas to Jesus and bringing the world to Jesus. And so what I would just encourage you today, if you know that there's someone that you're at odds with, get it right with them. Call them up, email them, text them, go over to their house and say, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. It may be the most humbling thing you will do this year, but it will honor and glorify God. It will maintain the unity or restore the unity of the church and it will help us in the mission. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'm going to give you just a few minutes right where you are to just really get alone with God and to say, oh, show me if I'm at odds with anyone. Show me if I'm someone who's creating division in the church. God, even if it wasn't my intention, please show me and help me to change. So just take a moment right there in the silence of, of the church to pray, and I'll close this in a second. Father, we need you. We need you. We need, we can't do this on our own. This is not a try harder. This is, I can't do this. It's as simple as that. And we need your Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside so that our outward actions begin to reflect the new reality in our hearts so that we are reflecting the character of Jesus, our Lord. And we'll do it imperfectly here. But help us, Lord, restore unity. If, if unity has been broken in this church, Lord God, restore it. And help us to fight as hard as we can to avoid any kind of disunity in this church. Unite us to yourself. Unite us in the truth. Thank you for loving us and forgiving us and unifying us and rec uh, reconciling us to yourself. We worship you and we thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.